So as the most of you know, we've been studying the book of Matthew, and you could go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Matthew. Uh, we are in Matthew 8, 1 to 4 this morning, but I just want to, as we kind of get there, I just want to um, introduce it again, kind of remind you where we are in the flow of the book. Uh, we looked at the first four chapters, which told us about Jesus's miraculous conception, the announcement of his birth by an angel, the his early life and how it fulfilled scripture. That was kind of the first four chapters. Matthew showed us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised king of, of David's line that the Old Testament promised would come. John the Baptist in those chapters bore witness that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was baptized in 315 to fulfill all righteousness. And according to Matthew 121, he came to save his people from their sins. He showed that he was able to do it by overcoming the devil's temptation in the wilderness. And so Matthew has shown us that Jesus is truly God the Father's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. He overcame temptation. He's come to fulfill righteousness. He's come to save his people from their sins. And so he is the sinless Savior. And he is a sovereign King. He's the rightful ruler of the world, come to save his people and offer the kingdom to Israel that was promised in the Old Testament. And at the end of chapter 4, he calls Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, as well as James and John, also their brothers, to follow him. And so Jesus is calling people to follow him, to, to be his disciples. And if you look at Matthew 4, And verse 23 again, it's kind of a summary of Jesus's ministry. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his frame, his fame spread throughout all Syria And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so Jesus's ministry, as we kind of enter into the, the really the beginning after kind of the initial introductions of Matthew Jesus' ministry is summarized in verse 23 as teaching, preaching, and healing every disease and affliction. Teaching in the synagogues, preaching, proclaiming the, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. That's a summary of Jesus' ministry. And his preaching ministry was summarized in 417. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That same word used for preaching in 4.17, where it says he began to preach, is the same word used in 4.23, where Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's the same word there, proclaiming and preaching. Now, Jesus' teaching ministry was presented to us by Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. And up until the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus hadn't really said much in the gospel. And so the Sermon on the Mount introduced us to Jesus' words. 
Look at chapter 5 and verse 1 as we begin into the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and of course we looked at the Sermon on the Mount in detail. Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them. He taught his disciples, and that word there, taught, is the same word as we see in 423, where he was teaching in their synagogues. And so, so far in this gospel, we have seen Jesus' teaching and his preaching. And the Sermon on the Mount is really the ultimate example of both. The Sermon on the Mount is, is preaching that teaches. It's teaching, preaching. Now, verse 23 and 24 also summarize Jesus' healing ministry, but, but Matthew hasn't given us any examples of it yet. And that's what he's going to do now in chapters 8 and 9. He's going to show us Jesus' healing ministry. Now, if you go to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, look at the, the very end kind of summary statement, verse chapter 7, verse 28. <clears throat> it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus, as we saw, he taught with authority. And we looked at the Sermon on the Mount in detail, and and Jesus told us exactly what we must be to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He called us to enter into a life of obedience to him. He commanded us to live a life of righteousness for the glory of God. And his teaching was with authority. And now in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to see his authority over sickness. We're going to see his authority over nature, his authority over demons, and over even sin. The authority of his miracles confirms the authority of his message that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, it's, it's possible, maybe perhaps, it's possible for someone to come along and, and speak with authority and to make great claims about themselves. But it's another thing entirely to back it up with supernatural works like the Lord Jesus did. And so we're going to begin a look at Jesus' deeds. Now this section, Matthew chapter 8 and 9, isn't necessarily in chronological order. Matthew actually, what he does here is he has three sets of three miracle stories here. And one of those stories actually kind of has two miracles in one. And so there's three sets of miracle stories with, with three miracles in each set, except for one that has four miracles. And so that's three sets of three plus one for ten, ten miracles in a row. Nine stories, ten miracles. And the three sets of miracles are separated by two sets of calls to discipleship. And so we're going we're gonna to see three miracles and then a little bit on discipleship, and then three miracles, and then a little bit on discipleship, and then three miracles, which actually has four miracles. And, and then that section's gonna close with Matthew chapter 10 and Jesus' words again. So let's take a minute just to look at kind of a, I wanna give you like a, a flyover of this section. <coughs> Excuse me. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Now, verses 1 to 4 is what we're going to look at today. And here's what it says. It says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, 
you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And that's miracle number one. Jesus healed a leper. And we're going to look at that in more detail in a little bit. But next in verses 5 to 13, Jesus healed the slave of a Gentile. Uh, The Gentile was a Roman centurion. And remarkably, Jesus healed this man without even being in his presence. And so that's miracle number two or story number two. And then third, in verses 14 to 17, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever. And that's the first set of three miracles. And notice they're, they're all somewhat outcasts from kind of from greater to lesser. There's a leper, a slave of a Gentile, and then we have a woman. And then in verses 18 to 22, there's a brief interlude there on discipleship. And two people tell Jesus that, that they're going to follow him. And Jesus points them to the cost of being a disciple of his. And then the second set of miracles starts in verse 23. That's miracle number four. And Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea. And a great storm that we see in verse 24 becomes a great calm in verse 26. And then in verse 27, look at it there. The, the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And so that's miracle number four. Miracle number five is in verses 28 to 34 of chapter eight. Jesus casts out multiple demons from two demon-possessed men who were so fierce that no one could pass that way. No one could go down that road or, or go near them. They were, they were so fierce, but Jesus casts out multiple demons from these men and they go into a, a herd of pigs. Miracle 6 is in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, where Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic. And then he heals the man to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. And so if set one shows us Jesus' compassion for the outcasts, set two shows us Jesus' power over nature, over demons, and even over sin. And the focus of the middle set, and really on this whole section, is Jesus' authority. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Of course, at the time, the crowd supposes that, that Jesus is a man, but they, they marvel at the authority that he has over nature, over sin, and over demons. And after the second set of three miracles, we have another interlude on discipleship. Matthew is called to follow Jesus in verses 9 to 13. And then the the disciples of John have a a question about fasting in verses 14 to 17. And the third set of miracles, the the third set of, of miracle stories begins in verse 18 with miracle number seven. Jesus raises the daughter of the synagogue ruler to life. She was dead and, and she rose back to life. They were, they were in the midst of her funeral and he even raised her up during the funeral. Now, on the way to the funeral, Jesus also healed another woman. And so that's kind of miracle seven and miracle eight. 
Then story number, story number eight, miracle number nine, if you're tracking with this, verse 27 to 31, Jesus heals two blind men and they receive their sight. And then miracle 10, story number nine, the third set of three, kind of closing it up in verses 32 to 34, Jesus healed the demon possessed man who was also mute. And when the demon was cast out, the man spoke. Now, the final set of three miracles shows us Jesus' power over speech, over sight, and even over death itself. Jesus is, is sovereign over death. And then verses 35 to uh, 38, have a look at that. The concluding summary again, verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, note this again, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And that's really the same as what we saw in chapter 4, verse 23. Teaching, preaching, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so notice again, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that's preaching, heralding the the good news, and healing every disease and every affliction. That was Jesus' ministry. He taught, he preached, he healed. And he had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's one of the things that we want to notice as we work through this section, chapters 8 and chapters 9. Jesus has shown us what he demands. He, he has shown us in his teaching and preaching what he demands, but, but, but he is at the same time, he is exceedingly compassionate towards everyone who will come to him. And so he has strong demands, but he is also compassionate towards those who will come to him. Jesus cares about people. He cares about our problems. He cares about our concerns. He cares about us. And he will help us. He will help whoever comes to him. And, and if we come poor in spirit looking for his help, he will offer it. And so Jesus demands allegiance, but at the same time, he will help us attain to it. And so let's look at this compassionate Jesus in this first miracle in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. This first miracle really begins with the lowest of the low. It's an unclean leper. And first we'll see the the leper's approach in verses 1 and 2. That's number one in our outline, the leper's approach, verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1 again. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him. A leper approached him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And so great crowds followed Jesus. And it's, it's likely again because of his healing ministry that we saw in verse, in chapter 4, verse 23. Again, chapter 4, verse 23 says, so he went throughout all Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness among the people, every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so this man has has heard and and even great crowds are are following Jesus. They're not necessarily his disciples, but they're they're curious about him and they're they're bringing sick people so that he can heal them. And Jesus has finished now the sermon on the mount. He's he's come down, but but like I said, Matthew doesn't necessarily present this in chronological order. It's more of a, a, a theological order, if we could say. It, it, it's, it's probably not immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, but it's after he preached the Sermon on the Mount and the crowds are, are following him. But, but they're, they're most likely not right there when the leper approached Jesus. They're most, they're most likely not right there. Nothing is mentioned about the crowd in verse 2. Nothing's mentioned about the crowd even, even following this. A, a crowd of people, if we think about this, a crowd of people would not have allowed a leper to approach them. They were, the lepers were regarded as ceremonially, ceremonial, ceremonially, I should have practiced that, ceremonially unclean. Leviticus 13 and 14 give instructions for the priest to, to diagnose leprosy. And if and when someone was diagnosed as a leper, they were regarded as unclean. And they, they could not be regarded as clean again until, until their leprosy went away and the priest confirmed it according to Leviticus 14. And so listen to this. This is Leviticus 13 verse 45. It says, quote, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. Lepers had to live outside the camp. They could not live in any city in Israel. And they were to have no contact with healthy people. No contact with healthy, healthy people. To touch a leper would make you unclean. Leviticus 5, 3 says, if, if he, and that is if anyone touches human uncleanness, and that would include the, the uncleanness of a leper, if anyone touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. And then that verse goes on to say that, that such a one who, who touches human uncleanness would need to offer a sin offering. And so to touch an unclean human would make an Israelite unclean according to the law. And it could also very likely spread the disease. And so the, the lepers were quarantined outside of the camp. And therefore, because of this rules, because of these, these things in the law, Jews made a rule to make sure that they stayed healthy and to make sure that they stayed ceremonial, ceremonially clean. They made a rule that they had to stay six feet away 
from a leper. And so in the, the Mishnah, the commentary on the law, there was this rule. You had to be six feet away from a leper. And so the, the crowds wouldn't have permitted the leper to come near them. And, and if a leper would have come near them, the crowd would have dispersed to at least, at least six feet away. Now, when a leper came near, they would have been calling unclean, unclean. And, and they, they wore torn clothes and they had their hair loose and, and they had, and, and I'm not sure what this is, some kind of a covering over their mustache. Now, I, I think that was more of a, a thing of shame to kind of cover the mustache. Um, but it, it might have been even some kind of a face covering. I, I couldn't really figure out much about that, but they, 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 they covered their, their face in some way, their upper lip. They literally in Hebrew, they covered upon their lip. And so it's some kind of a Hebrew idiom. Plus lepers are, are required to call out unclean, unclean. And as, as they approach people until they were verified clean by a priest. Now, not only that, but lepers were easily recognizable because they had leprosy. And so if you had leprosy in, in many cases, you were entirely white and your hair was white and you were, you were very noticeable. Now, leprosy, as far as, you know, biblical, Hebrew, ancient writing, leprosy included a wide variety of skin diseases. It, it, it wasn't only what we think of as leprosy today. There, there would have been a, a wide variety of contagious and, and spreading skin diseases, including most likely what we think of as leprosy today, which is apparently is called Hansen's disease. So if, if Hansen's disease did exist, in Jesus's day, when Jesus was on the earth, it would have included that, but, but it would have included a, a, an even wider variety of, of skin conditions. And so we, we simply don't know much about exactly what this man had. But we do know that the man had leprosy and that was diagnosed according to Leviticus 13. And so he was sick and he was unclean. He was unclean and he was not permitted to dwell with the rest of society. He was an outcast from society. And this man would have had no human contact since the day that he was diagnosed with leprosy, except with other lepers. And so as often you would find lepers kind of out in the outcasts and they would, they would live by themselves in, in small groups and care for one another. But this man would have had no healthy human contact since the day that he was diagnosed. And he would have also been regarded as a sinner by the rest of society. He was regarded as unclean. And to be unclean is to be a sinner. There's a, a close association between uncleanness and sin. And it was likely worse, if you think about it, it was likely worse to be unclean than to be sinful. Because sin could be forgiven, right? You could, you could go and make an offering for your sin and you could have your sin removed, but uncleanness of leprosy could not be removed. The only cleansing that this man could have is if he were healed of his leprosy. But there was no cure for leprosy, at least the, and even today there is no cure for what we know as Hansen's disease. Now behold, this leper comes and he comes to Jesus. He came to Jesus and he knelt before him. 
Now that word there translated and knelt before him, that's, we've seen that already in Matthew. We've seen it five times. And I actually want you to, to turn back to Matthew chapter two and I want you to see this word. This word that this, where, where this man knelt before Jesus, it was used of the Magi who had bowed down to worship Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter two and verse two, they were saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They have, they have come to, to kneel down before Jesus and to prostrate themselves before him and to worship him. And then again in Matthew chapter two and verse eight, and he sent them to Bethsaida saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Same word there. Matthew 2.11, we see it again. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That's the same word. They, they, they fell down and they, they worshipped the child Jesus. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now this same word, knelt down, worship, is used also in Matthew 4 and verse 9. And it's used by Satan in this context. And Satan says to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Jesus said to Satan, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And there are two times in those two verses, we see that same word, worship. Now that word can mean simply to bow low in respect, but usually it's used to mean more, more like, like veneration or worship or to prostrate oneself before a god in kind of Greek culture or, or to prostrate oneself before the emperor who was viewed as God. And so the, the leper comes and, and he kneels down before Jesus and, and it could be that he's just kneeling down, but it could be that he is even in a posture of worship before the Lord Jesus. And he also then calls Jesus Lord. Which again could, could merely be a respectful address, much like our sir, but it could also mean that, that he knew Jesus as Lord in, in the sense of he knew Jesus as Yahweh. He knew Jesus as God. Now, whatever the man knew at the time, we, and, and we can't be dogmatic about what the man knew, but whatever the man knew, I think Matthew wants us to know that, that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is God and human flesh, and that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. And Matthew's been telling that over and over. And so at the very least, this man is, is doing more than he knew. And Matthew's trying to show us that again, that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in human flesh. And he is worthy of our worship. Now this man, he must have heard about Jesus. And, and somehow he knew that Jesus could heal him. And he came to Jesus and he prostrated himself before him. And, and look at what he said there in, in verse 2. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And so he knows that Jesus is able to make him clean. He knows that Jesus has the power to do it. That's what that word means, the power to do it. He knows that Jesus has the ability to heal him. And so the question in this man's mind is not whether Jesus can. He can. 
The, the man believes that Jesus can. The question in this man's mind is about Jesus' will. Is Jesus willing to do this thing? Does Jesus want to heal him? He could do it. Does he want to? I'm, I'm a leper. I'm unclean. I'm, I'm unworthy. Would, would Jesus heal me? Would he help me? And notice the man doesn't even ask a question. He, he makes a statement. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so he presents the situation to the Lord and he leaves it with him. He leaves it with the Lord. And so that was number one, the, the leper's approach. Now number two, the Lord's answer in verse three. Look at the Lord's answer in verse three. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now this is remarkable on, on so many levels. Obviously the remarkable that the man's leprosy was cleansed. That's amazing. Jesus healed the man. Jesus healed the man. And he was, he was instantly healed. Leprosy gone. His skin would have been visibly deformed and now it's completely restored. The key mark of leprosy was its, its visible discoloration, even, even open sores at times on the skin. And there, there was no hiding leprosy. Everyone would have been able to see the, the, the leprosy. And, and honestly, if it was Hansen's disease, people would have been able to smell the leprosy. People would have been able to, to hear it in the man's voice. It, it really deteriorated everything about a person. And so there was no hiding this leprosy. Everyone would have been able to see it. And then everyone would have been able to see the miraculous healing that Jesus did. Jesus healed the leper. And he did it with no show, no drama, no, no special ceremony, no gimmicks. Just an instantaneous, complete, and total healing. And this is remarkable because miracles hadn't happened in Israel for over 400 years. Malachi was the, the last prophet in Israel around 400 years earlier. And even amongst the prophets, healings and miracles were exceedingly rare. John the Baptist was a prophet. He didn't do any miracles. And only twice in biblical history was leprosy healed before this. Only twice that's recorded in scripture. Remember Moses' sister Miriam contracted leprosy as a, a judgment from God for speaking against Moses with her brother Aaron. And Numbers 12, 1 to 16 recounts the story. And after Miriam and Aaron uh, repented of their sin of rebellion against Moses, Moses prayed for his sister. And the Lord said, send her outside of the camp for seven days. And by the end of the, the seven days, the, the diagnostic gnostic period that's recorded in Leviticus 13, by the end of that, that seven days, she was healed of her leprosy. And we really don't have any details about how it happened or whatever, but the Moses prayed for his sister. And by the end of the seven days, she was healed and accepted back into the camp. The other time leprosy was healed is recorded in second Kings chapter five, where Elisha, the prophet was, was used to heal the commander of the army of Syria. And this man's name was Naaman, and he was, he was cured by washing seven times in the Jordan according to the word of Elisha. And those are the only other times where scripture, at least in the Old Testament, records the healing of lepers. Now in Matthew chapter 10, and, and I guess you could turn there if you'd like, we're just right, right close to there. Matthew 10 and verse 8. 
Jesus is going to commission his apostles. And part of that commission in verse 8 is heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And so Jesus is going to commission his apostles to cleanse lepers. And in Matthew 11 and verse 5, Jesus tells John's disciples that that as as proof of his messiahship, look at 11 verse 4, Jesus answered them, Jesus answers John's disciples, and he says to them, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so John's disciples, they come and they want to know, according to verse three, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, one of the evidences that he is the Messiah is that the lepers are cleansed. Now Luke 17 and verse 12 records Jesus healing 10 lepers. And so it seems that this was a a common aspect of Jesus's ministry, healing lepers. And so the healing of leprosy is remarkable. But go back to to chapter 8. There's more here. Not only did Jesus heal this man, but he also touched him. Now again, nobody would have touched this leper, except perhaps another leper, since the day of his sickness. No one would have come within six feet of him. In fact, listen to this. John MacArthur noted this quote. He says, One ancient rabbi said, When I see lepers, I throw stones at them lest they come near me. Another said, quote, I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on a street where a leper had walked, end quote. So you think about this leper and, and nobody has touched this man. How sad would that be? Total isolation. Even the most religious people, these are rabbis that are recorded in the ancient scriptures, even the most religious people threw rocks at them and they taught others to do the same. But Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched the man. Moses had put Miriam outside the camp for her healing. Elisha had sent Naaman to wash in the Jordan. He had sent him away, but Jesus touched the man. And we see in this touch, we see Jesus' compassion. He didn't need to touch the leper to heal him. He could have healed him without touching him. All that was needed was Jesus' will to heal the man. And, and in the very next miracle, it proves it. Because look at Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5. It says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And we can skip down now to verse 13 there. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And so we see from that that Jesus didn't need to touch the man, but he did it as an act of love and compassion. And when he touched that man, 
Jesus didn't become unclean. Instead, the man became clean. The man was instantly healed of his leprosy. And so here's something that we need to know about Jesus. Jesus loves to show compassion. And when the lowest and the weak and the outcast come to him, he loves to pity them. He loves to help them. Jesus is only hard towards those who refuse him or towards those who reject him. He came to save sinners. He came to accept us and to make us acceptable to God. And if you will receive Jesus on his terms, he will receive you. He will welcome you with open arms and he will help you. Another remarkable aspect to this whole thing is that that Jesus says, I will be clean. I will. He doesn't say, I'll check in with the Father. He doesn't say, I'll, I'll pray about it. He doesn't say, be cleansed in the name of God the Father or be cleansed in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus shows it's, it's his sovereign choice. He says, I will. It's, it's his will that matters. It's he is the determining factor. Now, in other places, he, he does tell us that he always does the will of the Father and that he and the Father are one. But, but throughout this section as, on, on Jesus' miracles, the emphasis is on him. He does miracles. Jesus Christ does miracles. He is powerful to do them. He, Jesus Christ, is over sickness. He is over nature. He is over demons. He is over everything. He forgives sins. He's over all of those things. He has power over those things. And he does it because he is God. Jesus gives the word and the man is cleansed. And he actually gives a command there, be cleansed. He just tells the man, be cleansed and it's done. He speaks the word and it is done. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now what a thing to see that would be on that day. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now friends, I want to tell you that this same Jesus who had compassion on the leper died to save us from something even worse than leprosy. Leprosy in scripture was, was used as a picture of sin. And that's why Miriam became leprous in her rebellion against Moses. Leprosy was a, a hideous, dreaded, and fearful disease that separated those who had it from society. But sin is an even more hideous and fearful malady that separates us from God. Leprosy made one unclean from the world standpoint, but sin makes us unclean before God. Sin is breaking God's law and God will break those who break his law. God will punish sin because God hates sin. But God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners from his wrath. Jesus died to save sinners. His ministry was to teach and preach and heal, but most ultimately, he came to die in our place to bear God's wrath for our sins so that God could be just and that God could justly forgive us of our sins. And three days after Jesus died, he rose again. He's alive today. And Jesus is here even now. And he remembers and he knows that he came to save sinners. He remembers that he died to save his people from their sins. 
And he is as compassionate now towards sinners as he was on that day towards the outcast, unclean leper. We sang this morning, and I'm, I'm not quite remembering the words, but something along the lines that we were vile and unclean. And Jesus came to wash us of that vileness and to make us clean before the Father. And so if you haven't done so today, if you haven't done so, say to Jesus today, even in in your heart now, say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he will cleanse you of your sin. He has told us that he is willing to save sinners who come to him. Now, as far as healing goes, Jesus hasn't sent us to heal every sickness like he did with his apostles. He sent us to preach the gospel of salvation. He sent us to be healed and to preach the message of forgiveness of sins. Now, sometimes God will answer prayers for healing, but it seems largely the miracles of Jesus and the the miracles of his apostles were there to confirm the word of God that they wrote. And so we, although we do believe that God will at times answer prayer for healing, that's not, that's not our mission. That's not what we are to do. But don't miss this today. Don't miss this. The Jesus who is all powerful and willing to heal the leper who came to him, he is powerful and willing and alive and here to help us always. Jesus is compassionate and loving and he loves to show mercy. He loves to save sinners. And so let's look then number three. We saw the the Lord's answer. Now let's look at in verse four, the Lord's appeal. Verse four says, and Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. The Lord commanded this man to, to keep quiet about the healing and instead to go show himself to the priest. Now, Leviticus chapter 14, and, and you could read that on your own. It, it actually outlines a process for the priest to verify and confirm and declare clean somebody who is healed of leprosy. Now, when you think about this, now, perhaps there was a, a few kind of what we could put in quotes, leprosies that existed that would, that would maybe kind of self-heal. Some certain skin conditions maybe would, would come and then, and then go away. And so you could be regarded as a leper and then, and then you, you could be kind of regarded as, as no longer a leper. But what we know of, of as leprosy today, that was not curable. Although there are certain treatments that can be done for it today, but, but there was a process outlined for the priest in Leviticus 14, on how to confirm the cleansing of leprosy, including the offerings to be given when and when to pronounce the person clean. And so if we go by what is recorded in Scripture, this procedure would have been done once in Israel's history with Miriam. Now, Ammon was a, a Syrian. He was healed of leprosy, but he wouldn't have gone through the process of Leviticus 14. He returned to Syria. And so once that we know of between 1446 BC and the Exodus and between 30 AD, would a priest have done this ceremony in order to declare somebody clean of leprosy? Now, maybe a handful of other times, lesser skin conditions, also called leprosy, would have been dealt with this way. 
But I, I would love to see, have seen the surprise on the, the priest's face when this man comes and says, I, I was a leper, but I was healed of leprosy. I would have loved to see the, the surprise that when this man reported the good news of his healing. And I, I would have enjoyed him kind of scurrying to the back. Hey, guy, hey, Jim, there's a, there's a guy here. He's been healed from leprosy. Do you, do you remember where that is on that scroll of Leviticus? Uh, they, is it Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy? I don't remember. And so they would have been, you know, quick, get the scroll and looking through the scroll and trying to find where, where is this, this, I, I remember reading something about how to declare a man clean. And so, so the, they, the priest would have found this thing and then they would have, they would have declared the man clean according to what it says in Leviticus uh, chapter 14. And there was some shaving and some time involved and some offerings and some sprinkling of blood and all of this God prepared beforehand for the healing that Jesus did on this day. And this man then would have been legally reintroduced into society only after the priest completed what Moses commanded. And this thing, according to Jesus, is going to be a a proof to them, literally a witness to them. This would be a testimony, and it would be a, a verified testimony to the religious establishment. An undeniable, priest verified, miraculous healing for a witness that Jesus was the one who was to come, that Jesus was the Messiah. Now Mark tells us in Mark chapter 4, that the man didn't obey, or it might be Mark chapter 1, but the, the, the man didn't obey Jesus' command. At least, he didn't obey the command or the part about not telling anyone. But Matthew, he's not concerned about that, and we're preaching through Matthew, not through Mark. Matthew is, is more concerned that we see Jesus' authority. Matthew wants us to see Jesus' power, and he wants us to see Jesus' compassion. And again, when this priestly visit was done, the, the former leper would be declared clean and he would be welcomed back to society. And so we've seen then the leper's approach in verses 1 and 2, coming to Jesus, kneeling or even possibly worshiping him. He called Jesus Lord and he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. We've seen the Lord's answer in verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And we saw the Lord's appeal in verse 4. Now as we think about this, uh, the question that, that came to my mind is what, what should we do with this? What, what are we supposed to do with all of this? We're, we're not lepers. Jesus has come and gone. He died and rose again. He's, he's not here in the flesh. What are we to do with this story? I've already spoken today to the unsaved that you should come to Jesus for cleansing from your sins. Jesus isn't here in the flesh, but, but he is here in the spirit. Jesus as God is everywhere. And as believers, we are united to Jesus Christ. He lives in us. The same Jesus that we read about in Matthew 8, he lives in us. What Paul said in Galatians 2.20 applies to us. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so Christ lives in us, this very same Christ. And he's a husband to the church. We are his bride. Christ is our head. He is our leader. And he leads us. 
And what we see from this whole section, Matthew 8 and 9, is that he is in control of everything that happens in our world. He's in control of everything that comes into our lives. He leads us into those very things. He has chosen them before the foundation of the world. And, and he leads us into whatever he has designed for us. And this Jesus has power over sickness. He has power over nature. He has power over demons and Satan. He has power over the nations and over the world. And he cares for us. Whatever he leads us through, he will be with us. Now, I'm not saying as I say this that, that he won't lead us through some tough things. He will. And even as I think about our future in this nation and in this country, I, I wonder what are those things going to be? And if, if you're like me, you've been thinking about that too lately. You've been worried about maybe not so much what's happening in Lacrete, but what's happening outside of Lacrete. But whatever the Lord Jesus leads us through, he will be with us in it. And he is powerful and he is compassionate. He loves us and he cares for us. And he could stop it like this. He could come with the breath of his mouth and, and put an end to it all. He could come and take us right now and rapture us away to heaven. Or he could lead us through the most difficult things and he could do it and we could be full of joy because he is powerful enough and he cares for us. And he promises that he won't lead us through anything that isn't for our good and for his glory. And so we can take great comfort in this, that Jesus is powerful, he's compassionate, he loves us, and he cares for us. And so we're going to sing, "'Tis so sweet.'" to trust in Jesus. And I can hardly wait. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. You've given us your words and now you show us your power. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you rose from the dead and that you are alive today and here with us. We thank you that you are with us to the end of the age. And we are so thankful for that. Father, forgive us for where we worry or where our our minds forget who you are and what you can do. And I pray that you would set our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ and give us joy as we think about the the sweetness that it is to trust Jesus. It is truly sweet, Father. And we, those of us who are saved, we thank you for it with all of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.